0: There is no one-size-fits-all. You have to actually want to understand what the concepts of sustainability are and then apply it to your individual, in this case, golf courses.
1: Welcome to Golf Sustainability, the podcast dedicated to advancing sustainability of the environment and the game of golf for future generations hosted by golf sustainability founder, John Fiella, The golf sustainability podcast will feature conversations with industry leaders on the environmental and social issues impacting the future of the game. Let's tee off. Hi everyone. I'm John Fiella, and welcome to the golf sustainability podcast. I'm excited about today's episode as my guest is an accomplished author, educator, and biologist. Ron Dodson, principal of the Dodson Group. Ron's also the author of Sustainable Golf Courses, which is a seminal work in my eyes that really serves as the most authoritative roadmap for anyone interested in ensuring the environmental sustainability of their golf course operation. Ron, welcome to uh, the Golf Sustainability Podcast. It's Great to have you with us today. Appreciate you being here.
0: Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm glad to be here too.
1: Listen, let's start Ron with a little about you. This this is actually, and we've talked numerous times. I actually haven't shared this with you, but previously I was I started a, an enterprise called smart energy decisions and the inspiration for that was in the summer of uh, 2015, I read a book called Creating Climate Wealth, which was by someone who's now in the Department of Energy called Jigar Shah. And it inspired me and it led to the development of smart energy decisions. I must say your book, Sustainable Golf Courses, serve very much the same inf- inspiration for me. It's a, a great book. I think. Anyone that's interested in the topic should be reading it. And I just want to thank you at the outset for helping to inspire my jumping into golf sustainability through that fine book that you published, which is now close to 20 years ago.
0: Thanks. And I'm glad to find somebody read it.
1: (laughs) All right. Hopefully we'll get a lot more people to read it. Why don't we start by having you tell us a little about yourself, your journey, in golf sustainability leading up to what you're doing now, Ron?
0: Okay. I was born and raised in Indiana and now live in upstate New York and played golf in high school and also on a scholarship on the the college level. So I've been involved in the game of golf for a long time and I am not near as good as I used to be, but I still enjoy playing. Uh, But at the same time, when I was in college, I actually majored in wildlife biology and natural resource management. I was one of the, matter of fact, I think I was the only person who was on a golf scholarship that was in that field of studies. Um, and 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 at that time, it didn't really click that maybe there was something that I could do with golf. It was only later, several years later, when I got involved with the Audubon group up here in New York State, and decided that I wanted to spend more time working with people as opposed to yelling and screaming at them and tell them what they were doing wrong, try to work with people. And it was my dad who actually suggested to me that, why don't you work with golf courses? They've got a lot of land, they use water, they use pesticides and fertilizer and the game. And so that's how I got involved with golf here in New York State. It started with skunks on a golf course up in near Glens Falls, New York. And so that's when it started, around 1987, I think, 90, yeah, 1988 maybe. Um, but, the, but the whole, in a nutshell, my whole career since that time has been focusing on trying to get people, where they live, where they work, and where they play, more connected with nature and natural resource management and think about the decisions they're making relative to Managing even their homescapes or their business or whatever. Uh, so that's what I'm trying to accomplish and still trying to accomplish today get more people out in nature and enjoying nature, but also realizing that what they do to it has a, either a positive or negative impact on nature.
1: That's interesting. So it started with your academic pursuits and then led to tying that into golf course work and The work you did at Audubon and which I guess it it was during that period in time where you wrote you wrote the book tell me about how sustainable golf courses came about what what prompted you to write that book and what was the the genesis of it
0: there are actually a number of books that came about and a lot of the reason that came about is because I was involved I was on the United States Golf Association's Turfgrass and Environmental Research Committee for about 20 years and visiting a lot of the golf courses. And basically, I was a, a classroom teacher for a number of years until I uh, left that and went to the conservation field. But so I consider myself an educator. And so one of the things that I realized is that I can't possibly go face to face and visit everybody that I would like to visit and talk to about conservation management. Maybe I need to write a book. So I kept thinking about that. And I was actually approached by somebody with Wiley publishing to write a book. And I thought, Hey, that's an idea. School teachers have books, so why not? So my first book was managing wildlife habitat on golf courses. So it was specifically to wildlife creating wildlife habitat, managing wildlife habitat, but on a golf course. The golf sustainability book came later and it it was also published by Wiley, who as we went through time, it became clear to me, I already knew this, but it became clear to others (laughs) that there was a lot of aspects of managing a golf course other than just wildlife, water, obviously is connected to wildlife, but there's also the whole social and community benefit and all of the other things that come with that. In the, in the case of the book you're referencing there, I, I was convinced by somebody, by by one of the publishing people, that I, even though I, it was called Golf Sustainability, uh, uh, it, it also focuses on the environment, it says so right on the title, mainly because they thought that people were not ready for uh in your face <laughs> that sustainability book that talked about the social and economic aspects of it so that those two parts of sustainability are not real heavy in that book but i mentioned them but i which is why i'm working on another book now that is more focused on true sustainability as it relates to golf whether anybody will be interested in that, I don't know, but I'm going to do it anyway.
1: Yeah. Listen, it's what you're saying really resonates with me because based on my experience in sustainability in other industries, I mean, 20 years ago, w- when you wrote this, it was a very different ballgame. And today the notion of sustainability is much more holistic. It includes the environment, but it includes social. It includes governance. And it's really interesting to see how your journey in sustainability really started with interest in wildlife and it then expanded to include water conservation, waste, chemicals, insect maintenance, and now social. So I I think the next book that, that has that broader scope just makes a world of sense.
0: I To be honest with you, I always thought that I wanted to focus on, let's just call it conservation, at the community level. Mm -hmm. Because it was at the community level that we could truly make a difference. So in 1982, I started a little project that I called the Community Conservation Network. And I was going to try to actually work with in some way basically municipalities. And so I went and got myself to invited to give speeches to different municipal leader organizations, mayors' groups, city planner groups. And I just could not get anyone at that time to understand or uh, want to do that. So I decided, okay, if I can't do it at the community level, I'll have to go door to door in a community. And if I get enough doors in a community involved maybe eventually the whole community will want to get get involved and that's where the the cooperative sanctuary system i called it in the very beginning it was a system of trying to get different people where they live work and play to uh, include conservation in their land management and then when i started working with golf i decided because Because of my experience and knowledge about the game and the history of the game, what an opportunity for golf facilities Mm -hmm. to become leaders in a kind of a new conservation oriented management and position themselves in in ways that not only benefits the golf industry and the golf course, but the economic social and environmental sustainability of a community but at the time in the early 80s uh, the time wasn't right and i couldn't get uh, i remember at one point during the gcsaa annual conference ahead i organized a dinner at some restaurant for key people with the usga the gcsaa all the acronyms that are involved in the golf industry we all sat around a big table and we had food and we had drank and we talked and at the point in time i made a pitch to this assembled group that golf should become more engaged at the community level and to put together and promote the idea that golf is way more beneficial than just golf it creates jobs, it pays taxes, it buys products, it, some have, and they have educational programs and so forth and so on. But anyway, at the end of my little pitch, everybody just stared at me, and I still remember one person saying, Ron, we're just golf course people. You, 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 that is way beyond the scope of anything that we have the capability of doing. And you're asking us to get way outside of our comfort zone. And I was disappointed, but I said, okay, I'll just keep going the way I've been going then, but I think you're missing the boat.
1: <laughs> yeah. Look, you are clearly a visionary and it's interesting to hear how conservation through golf was really an important part of your initial thought process. I think the market today is, is much more ready hopefully even receptive to take action. I like your focus and your thinking about this notion of kind of community focus, because one of my observations, and we've talked about this briefly previously, there's a lot of messaging from the top, from the tops of these associations around sustainability-related initiatives, be it water conservation, be it creating a more inclusive um universe of people that play golf, but you don't see as much as you'd like at the grassroots level. And I think it's that community focus, this notion of a community conservation network or a golf sustainability network, something that's really focused on the grassroots, I think has, has some potential and has some legs.
0: I think there's two points to maybe consider on that topic. One is, I agree with you, there've been a lot of documents written and summits held and press releases given on the topic of golf sustainability. And I've been involved in several of them. You probably, maybe you know about, I think it was nine. We participate. we as in the USGA and our environmental committee and the RNA and a whole bunch of guys gathered at Valderrama Golf Club in Spain and wrote, over a period of two or three days, what was called the Valderrama Declaration. And the Valderrama Declaration was adopted by the USGA, the RNA, World Wildlife Fund for Nature. It's a broad-based thing. Uh, and the press releases were sent out. And I'm not sure that it used the word sustainability, but that's what it was all about. So that's, I think I have a copy of it somewhere on my wall. And <laughs> it's probably several walls, but I don't know whether anybody's actually walking at the grassroots level what we talked about. Another one that I was involved in was in at the Asia Pacific Golf Conference and Summit I can't remember, 2012, I believe. And we wrote another document that was actually adopted by the Sultan of Brunei. I went to Brunei and stood up there on a stage and had this parchment-looking thing with the golf sustainability, blah, blah. I have no idea whether anybody knows where that is or if anybody's doing anything about it. So, yeah, we've got all this stuff. These people use these words, but it doesn't seem to be coming up from the bottom, but we're talking about it at the top because it sounds good. And then the second point, that was a long-winded first point. The second point is in the golf operation, in the in the running of a golf course, who is the lead who is going to be the lead who is the lead person who's going to walk the talk of sustainability on a daily basis and i don't know what the answer is i know in my years of working in the golf industry there's a lot of different people in the boat that all have paddles but i'm not sure they're all paddling in the same direction nor do some of them have as nice a paddle as some other people do? So it ends up the canoe just goes around the a circle or it, it doesn't go towards a sustainability def destination, which is in the future. But So that's the second concern I have. And I think that's partly, if, if I were to go around today and visit a significant number of places that I've worked with, Including Valderrama Golf Club. That was the first certified Audubon cooperative sanctuary in Europe um, and, and other places where I worked. And we hung stuff on the wall and we had all kinds of fun stuff. Would I find someone there who actually knows what we did or what we said or what we planned? And so I think one of the weak parts so far is the lack of talent on my part, anyway to implant into a place the ethic that goes along with sustainability so that that becomes the business model and the way they run themselves yeah that's a hard thing
1: yeah you have really you've really triggered some thoughts there tied to my experience in prior industries and that is Ron, you're 100% right. Someone's got to own this because if no one owns it, it's not going to happen. And what I've seen happen in other markets is that what winds up happening is this role, this defined role of sustainability, it evolves and it gets put in place in more and more organizations. And that person owns this topic, this commitment, and they're working with other departments to move the ball forward. What, What I'm Hearing you say ties directly into my observation, which is there are a lot of well-intentioned efforts at the tops of these organizations, but what's lacking is a model, a plan, a methodology to take those good intentions and turn it into grassroots action. And I think that we've already established a theme for this episode and this conversation, Ron, because... It's all about inspiring, inspiring grassroots action. I I'd like to jump into some of the key concepts in your first book that I thought were interesting. The first one is you referred to it as no one size fits all. And that's the mm-hmm. outset of the book. Talk, talk to us a little about what you meant about that.
0: Basically what I was saying then, and I still believe now is that I have found that maybe it's this human person human trait to want to package things up and have a recipe book for whatever the topic is go to page one now go to page two do do what's on page two now go to page three do what's on page three and that might be helpful as a workbook but there's got to be a lot of blanks in it because every golf course is located in different places. The communities they're in need different things. The watersheds that they're in will be different from one place to another. The natural regions that they're in, the economies of those places, the golf industry itself will be different in different places around the country. So if you're gonna be economically successful in the golf business, you got to have a sustainable business p- model plan based on where you're physically located. Anybody that says all you have to do is follow everything that's in that book on your desk right there, and you will be sustainable, didn't read what I first said. There is no one size fits all. You have to actually want to understand what the concepts of sustainability are And then apply it to your individual, in this case, golf courses. And that starts with: are you a public golf course or are you a private golf course? Yeah, it's that that's part of walking the walk of sustainability. You have to walk your own walk.
1: Right. What's interesting, and that that ties into another message in the book, which is being sustainable is not a it's not a definitive place it's not a definitive thing. It's a way, it's a mindset. What are, in the book, you talk about environmental management plans and the importance of environmental management plans for both new courses and existing courses. Talk to me a little bit about the keys of an effective environmental management plan for a new course and then maybe for for an old course.
0: For a new or a the way I like to get involved was before they picked their land. Most of the time when I was involved in a, an Audubon signature project, which was a to be developed project, some development company had already done about 17 pro formas on this property and they have it tied up and they've based their economic return on some vision that they have for this property. And then while they were doing this they also said oh by the way we want to be environmentally friendly and we're going to we're going to be in the audubon program and then i get called in and many times i would look at the land and think how are we going to cram in all those houses that that you want to cram in right and build a golf course that is worth playing and you can maintain it and that makes sense. I did a lot of preaching on how do you choose the right land to start with. We did, we actually uh, developed a sustainability site selection system that was written up on a piece of paper, and I gave it to people at the Urban Land Institute and other development companies and said, here, look at this, and and it'll help you uh, make a decision on things, both from an environmental point of view, and therefore from an economic point of view as well. But so anyway, that's where it starts with is the site selection, and then the actual land planning that you do on on a site and an existing place. You have a little bit more of a challenge because it's a little more, more of a challenge if they did not a great job of picking their land back whenever the thing was built because you you're working with what you're what you have if you ha- if you if you're a private club and you have houses and all that stuff you're not going to move the houses you got you got to work with the place that you work you have so a lot of that is connected with infrastructure work creating uh, opportunities for green infrastructure for uh, drainage uh, on the golf course, uh, bringing your golf course maintenance facility up to what it ought to be from a, from an environmental management point of view. So you're not storing chemicals in the wrong place and washing your equipment off in a parking lot, and letting it run down to the road um, and so forth. Opportunities come when you do remodeling to, you're going to put in new drainage systems. Let's make sure the drains under the greens daylight to no mo zones and not directly to ponds and lakes and so there's a chance for the water to filter through vegetation before it gets into some water body and therefore reduce the amount of algae and other growth you might get in your ponds and uh, so forth so that that's the challenge that you have to work with and, and and the golf course superintendents are often stuck between a rock and a hard spot they're brought in to a golf course that may have some architecture issues as it relates to the golf course that causes a lot of uh, hand labor to manage what this golf course architect put in maybe 15 or 20 years ago so you get that challenge to deal with then you have the biggest challenge which are golfers that think they know more about managing a golf course particularly turf grass and golf greens than a trained golf course superintendent does make their life miserable and then of course if a golf course superintendent can't control the weather they need to be fired (laughs) so there's a lot of things that can be done existing golf course but what i've found in my experiences is most green committees at golf courses are really focused more on the social aspect of the club If, if it's a private club i'm talking about a private club and I've I've always told golf courses, I've told everybody that th- that that most people, most golfers, you never hear from. They come in, they play golf, they go get a beer, they have lunch, they enjoy the go around, they don't play too well, but what the heck? And they go home. There's about 10% or 5% this is what I'm calling the 595 rule, 5% of the public, or in this case, your members, are gonna agree with everything that you say, because they're just agreeable people. They like you, they got good personalities. 5% are gonna disagree with everything that you say, because they're negative people. They think they know more than you do, and whatever it is you say, they're gonna be against it. And 90% of the people, Really, they don't have an opinion. They just want to be left alone and enjoy the round and go home. But we tend to want to spend all of our time with that 5% that's agreeable. Avoid the 5% that's negative because they're a pain. Mm -hmm. And then we don't think about the 90% in the middle. And you got, I think the the secret is to figure out how do you build a positive relationship with the 90% in the middle? who are reasonable people, they aren't negative, they aren't out front positive, they don't show up and gripe at a Greens Committee meeting, there uh, uh, ever. And to me, that's where the grassroots opportunity is the 90% in the middle, not the 5% that agree with everything you say, they're not gonna help you very much.
1: So it is like a bell curve. You've got the ends and then you've got the bubble in the right. middle where where there's real yep. opportunity. Now. On on the dimension related to existing courses, I'm curious, do you have one or two examples of projects that you've seen really go where uh, an issue was identified and within the context of the existing framework, there was some uh, progress made?
0: There's been several golf courses, particularly down in Florida. I, I worked a lot with the Florida Department of Environmental Protection and we developed a manual for best management practices for golf course maintenance facilities in Florida. And so there's a number of existing golf courses down there that have t- their maintenance, I call it a, a natural resource management center, where they brought it up to meet the standards that, that DEP put out as it relates to having a separate building for your chemicals, a, Proper mixed load facility, good storage and inventory systems, and in the maintenance facility, uh, and all the things that go with that. So, I wouldn't, I can't name one right now off the top right. of my head. There's a number of them, but uh, if you haven't got a copy of that DEP document, you can get it online or the or get a hard copy and
1: go from there. Yep, yeah. I I just made a note to get that because I haven't seen it it's interesting at the state of Florida, which is my home state is also the only state to my knowledge where the best management practices are, that have been established by the golf course superintendents association are are actually required. And Correct. Um, I plan on getting connected with uh, that group and talk to some of the local, the local people in Florida that are, that are driving that program. Um, yeah.
0: And that right there is an example of what I think one aspect of of facilitating the movement towards more sustainable golf. Some people are going to be opposed to this, but when we pass a law, a rule, or regulation, it's passed to govern the least of us, not the best of us. And so if you can adopt something like they have in Florida, And it becomes a requirement. Then when you have, if you're a golf course superintendent and you have a discussion with your general manager or a greens committee, you have some legs to stand on. Even though they may already walk the walk and want to do the right things. Now it's, I have to do the right thing. Here, read this.
1: And that's, as I understand it, one of the reasons that in Europe things seem to be further ahead in terms of golf sustainability practices, is that the regulatory environment is certainly more stringent there. And based on my experience in other markets, what seems to happen is the regulatory environment is most stringent in Europe. It then gets adopted by California. And then once it's embedded in California, then it works its way through the rest of the country. And I know there are some things going on in California now related to water management that may very well wind up becoming a, a standard in other parts of the country.
0: That's a, a whole other topic. As you probably know, west of the Mississippi river in the United States, water is governed as a commodity mm-hmm. so, and it's governed by the Bureau of Land Management. So you're given an allocation of water. And so when I worked out west all over the place out there, one of my things was water conservation. Guess what? Under the Western Water Law, if you don't use the allocation that you've been given, they reduce it the following year because you didn't use all of your allocation. Next year, you might be in a drought. So there's actually disincentives to conserve water in the west. East of the Mississippi, the, the water is a public resource and it's managed completely different differently. So that's there's an example of one size does not fit all.
1: <laughs> sure, sure. Now on that point, sticking with water for a minute, what do you see are really the biggest um challenges that the industry is facing today from a sustainability standpoint? Golf industry? Yeah.
0: I'd say it's water more so in other in air, some areas than other areas, but overall, I think it's water. Some places like here and other places that I'm familiar with, we have more water sometime than we need, but other places are in a drought, and then you put that on top of, they may have a water problem, but they're letting build a whole bunch of houses out there. And then, if golf courses can uh, adapt to that and, and become wastewater management outfits where they use treated effluent to irrigate their golf courses, which is done in Phoenix and other places out there, there's another example of a positive role that a golf course can play for their community even though they're probably letting too many people go there and build houses and live any anyway, but they're doing what they're doing. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. 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 That I think that's an area where technology hopefully is going to play a role because if they're away from a new technology or a new methodology to be able to do that wastewater treatment on a smaller scale in more localized communities, that's something that may have a, have a positive impact on water use. I was actually surprised to learn that not all golf courses pay for their water. There are some courses that, uh, if they're part of a municipality, there's no charge for it, and some courses are more sensitive to water use simply on a cost basis than than others. Have you found that to be the case?
0: Yeah, yeah, we have uh, golf courses here in this upstate New York area who actually capture all of their water from the rain and put it in holding ponds. And that's what they use for irrigating your golf courses.
1: Yeah, What's, I'm curious, you talk a lot about the importance of new development being at the site uh, stage, right? Get getting the right parcel of land. What's your take on whether there's been any improvement uh, on that dimension over the last 20 years? Do you think people are being more conscious today in their site planning and acquisition around sustainability guidelines? Or do you think it's still about maximizing the economic ROI of the of, uh, any given yeah. project?
0: Yeah. I'd say overall it's still same old, same old.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: and it's it's probably connected to the fact that many of these companies are publicly traded And they're basically mandated by their shareholders to make a profit. Right. And they see most, in my opinion, most of the sustainability topic, other than the economic sustainability, as an expense rather than an economic opportunity. To me, that's one of the things that I have struggled with and thought about is we actually incentivize from the federal government on down to the local, doing things the wrong way. We don't incentivize doing things the right way because we haven't figured out how do you... I I talked to a guy, actually a, a guy down in Florida years ago, and he owned thousands of acres of farmland. And I was at his farm and looking at all of his stuff. And I remember asking him, I forget how many generations, this ranch had been in operation he probably has passed on by now but i said how do you do this how do you keep this thing going all these generations and he said we don't buy anything that rusts <laughs> his old they rode horses they were old school and he said what they did was economize their ecological assets. That's what's lacking. We are not economizing the environment. And we don't really think about the cost associated with building a new wastewater treatment plant, as opposed to building green infrastructure into existing golf courses, or new planned developments. So that it actually saves millions of dollars over time because you've economized your ecological assets based on where you're located.
1: Yeah, Ron, based on, and this is, I I get it. And I definitely hear this because in other industries I've been involved with, there's a definite cycle and that is early in adoption of sustainable business practices. The perception is being green is going to cost me money. And people eventually figure out a way to enhance their economic return by uh, engaging in responsible environmental practices and when being green means green that's when you really see things take off and i think that's exactly what you're talking about and i hope over time at golf sustainability to really bring more of those practices like one, one thing that was mentioned in your book around implementing new technology that resonated with me from prior experience is that often the initial upfront cost of deploying a new technology is considered as way too expensive, but right. when you look at the lifetime, like the life cycle price or what's referred to in the energy industry as the total cost of ownership, when you look at the total cost of ownership of deploying a new technology, it often saves a a, a a tremendous amount of money, but that requires a shift in mindset, which does take time.
0: Yeah, that's why it's important to actually think about your members, your community and so forth because if you're going to try to do something that's different, a new technology or whatever it is, even if you're in business of de- developing a new technology, you have to have early adopters and those early adopters can be case studies, can be spokespeople for what they've done and eventually if you do it the right way and things time helps more of those products get in the market. And as more products get in the market, the price can come down because you're selling more of your products still making your profit. That's the whole thing. And that was another thing about, you. in order to go down the sustainability path for golf or anybody, you have to go one step at a time. You can't, one of the problems with a lot of these real hardcore, avid environmental activists is they want everything tomorrow. And they don't think about, well, what is it like to actually walk the walk of a golf course superintendent and all the pressure they're under? You can't make them or suggest to them to do things that's gonna cause them to have more meetings, maybe get a reprimand, maybe get fired, and then you're gonna lose the person that you were actually working with. You gotta take it one step at a time but you got to keep your eye on the future and, and you really have to have a plan, a real plan, and then try to stick to it.
1: So Ron, for a superintendent that's listening to this and recognizes that they've got a long way to go and they want to get started. What would your counsel, what would your advice be to someone who wanted to get started on their journey in golf sustainability at their course?
0: First thing I would do is I would identify all the areas that I could that golf is never played in that I'm presently maintaining turf grass on. And maybe not in all those areas, but in some areas I would develop a plan to develop some habitat for pollinators or whatever. Even the worst golfer doesn't hit a golf shot backwards off a tee. So maybe there's some back areas behind tees that could be turned into a butterfly habitat. But and then you got to have some signage so they don't think you just let the stuff go. Future future pollinator garden or whatever. Um, that's where I would start. I would start with that and just identify areas. The other other thing that I've had a lot of interesting discussions with I really, I like trees. I like forest and woods and so forth. But if you're going to maintain a sustainable golf course, what you want to do is reduce the amount of inputs you have to put into the turf grass. Mm -hmm. So I'm an advocate for a tree inventory and finding out where you have trees over time that are blocking wind flow or putting too much shade on a golf green. And then thin those things out, not for the purpose of making the turf grass whiter, but for taking the pressure off the turf grass so you can reduce the amount of inputs that goes into it. That that might not even be a second step because that can cause some, it it takes some education sometimes. I've seen a lot of golf courses say publicly, yes, we're going to have to take out some trees, but we're going to replace every tree with two more trees. And that. Sounds really good if you're really into trees, but it might not be really good for turf grass. And so it, there again.
1: Start- the, there again, no one size fits all. Uh, but so really getting small wins, finding places to smart start small, show some progress, especially if it's accompanied with some cost reduction. So if you find some parts of your course that are currently being maintained where you can remove the costs associated with that maintenance, that's going to be an immediate cost savings. And you show that, and it maybe puts you in a better position to take the next step. So that's some advice that really makes sense to me, Ron.
0: Yeah. And that's why we started out with nesting boxes. Yep. You can put what? up wood duck boxes on ponds or osprey nesting platforms or bluebird houses. and And you can get, even reach out to local scout groups and have scouts build the boxes for you. So there's no cost for box and maybe even have an Eagle Scout project where they put the boxes up where you want them put up.
1: Right. And then that ties the community in, which is that social piece that I, I think is is a real benefit. What industry groups out there today, Ron, do you think are doing the best job in supporting the notion of golf sustainability and providing resources for superintendents to advance sustainability at their courses?
0: Well, I would say the USGA Mm -hmm. has some information. They've changed a lot of their programming and and stuff in the last couple, three years. So I don't really know exactly what they're doing other than the fact that they do have a, a group of agronomists that are out and about and doing site visits on golf courses and talking about the very things we're talking about tree management and shade and proper turf grass selection and management and maintenance facility stuff and they have a lot of educational information on their website so the usga i think is a lead group as far as superintendents are concerned the gcsaa has a whole dedicated area uh, and they have also I have regional staff people that are working with golf courses directly. I'd put those two groups up at the top of the list.
1: Okay, excellent. Ron, we've we barely scratched the surface on your book and certainly haven't even put a tiny scratch on the experience that you have to share. But I look forward to doing additional episodes of the podcast with you. I like to, at at the end of each episode, I always like to do something that's going to help us get to know our guests a little better. So I've got some non-golf questions that I'd I'd like to pose to you. And for starters, what drives you? You've clearly been inspired initially by wildlife, but what drives you to still have as much energy and passion about this topic today as you had decades ago when you were just getting started?
0: I'd say maybe two things. One is reading last year's report that there are about 70 million less birds in the North American continent than there was when I started my career as a wildlife biologist. And every bird and most other wildlife species for that matter, and every ecosystem on the planet, including the oceans, are in serious decline. Part of me says, I didn't do a very good job. I can't quit. I'm motivated to keep going because of we haven't accomplished what we need to accomplish. All you got to do is pay attention to the news and watch what's going on. And I try not to engage in the climate change debate. What I try to do is engage directly with people where they live, where they work, and where they play. Mm-hmm. Try to About what it's like to be them and try to think about what could I do to help make their lives easier to do the right things? What kind of people in positions of power could I have an effect on so they might start incentivizing doing the right things? And it's because of the state of the environment and what's going on around us. And the second thing is my four grandkids and I think all the time about what kind of world are they inheriting and what did I do to help make it as good as I could make it so they can do whatever it is there where whatever their life takes them towards and and feel like I did everything that I can do and I've written it down i have Working on a little blog now, right now called My Audubon Adventures to document some of the things I'm involved in, because I hope that one of these days my grandkids will get old enough that they might want to know what their grandpa
1: did. So that's really, that's it. And that's, that sense of wanting to change the world and leave the world a better place is a common theme. And many that I talk to who have committed their careers to sustainability and in the interest of maintaining, of making sure things are around for future generations, especially our own future generations, our kids and their kids and their kids, who would you say has inspired you the most, Ron?
0: There's been a number of people that, that have inspired me. I, I would say, as it relates to golf, two people, three, three people. My dad, and it was interesting, my dad was a policeman uh, when I was a kid, and he was tough. And we didn't really get along real well in my youth. Everybody liked him in the town. I grew up in Griffith Mayberry town in Indiana. I couldn't even understand why they liked him because he was really hard on me. <laughs> uh, we became friends after I became an adult, and... He actually apologized for some of the treatment he gave me. But anyway, the first thing that we did together was learn how to play golf. He didn't know how to play golf. I didn't know how to play golf. And as I said earlier, my dad suggested working with golf courses later in my life. But the second person related to that is Arnold Palmer. Dad and I watched Arnold Palmer. We went to some of the golf tournaments that we could go to and we watched Sam Sneed and all those guys play golf. But Arnold Palmer was a golf idol for me. And I was actually invited to Arnold's golf tournament down in Florida. And I went and met Arnold. Matter of fact, there may be a picture of me and Arnold in the book right there. I don't remember
1: whether it's in that book or the There is. He wrote the forward in here, which was interesting. And there are a couple pictures of you and him.
0: So I got to tell him while we were having a drink, what I just told you about my dad, who would have never thought about playing golf. But he thought Arnold Palmer seemed like a regular guy. If he can do this, I can do this. And so it was Arnold Palmer that motivated my dad and then me. And then I'm thankful I got to tell him that. And the third guy in golf that was really a motivator for me and and a a supporter and a a friend is Jim Snow. Jim was the director of the green section of the USGA. And I first met him, he was the regional agronomist up here in New York state. And he became the direction of the green section uh, about the same time that I launched the cooperative sanctuary program. He has since passed away, unfortunately, young man, way younger than me, but Jim was so supportive and so motivating for me to stay the course and and literally stay the course, that he was a really important person to me.
1: That's, that's great. I love that story about you and your dad learning to play golf at the same time. And I see how that, that would have. Left a very big impression on you. I like nothing more than going out and playing golf with my son. And we try to do that a couple times a year now that he's off on his own. And that's, those are special, very special moments.
0: We learned to play on was in Bicknell, Indiana. It had formerly been a cow pasture. They mowed it with a gang mower. (laughs) The greens were sand. You had to drag a rug around behind you to get the mark out so the next players could play, and that's how we started.
1: That's great. What's What would you say is the biggest challenge that you've had to overcome in your career, Ron?
0: Oh, boy, I would say probably every job I've had. Uh, a lot of successes, but almost every time I found either while I was at a position or after I left a position, the the mission, the ethic that I was trying to implant in the organizations that I actually ran didn't. they seem to be about five miles wide and about an inch deep. So it's been somewhat frustrating to see my lack of talent and success at both embedding this walk-in-a-walk part in places where I worked with, but also places that I managed after I was no longer there. That's been the most challenging and frustrating part. I think that's another reason why I'm still doing what I'm doing is... I I just feel like I haven't been overly successful yet. So I got to keep going.
1: Yeah. Listen, I, I respect and appreciate what you just said about your greatest challenge. I will tell you, I think you're being a little too hard on yourself because you've been a success. You've had a great impact and I recognize it. It may not be, haven't changed the world entirely as a single man, but you've done great work and I appreciate you. The, the last question that I would normally ask someone, which is, what would you like to leave behind for future generations? And, rather than have you answer that, I'm going to read this very brief passage at, in the afterword of your book, Ron, that really made an impression on me where you said, act as if the lives of your great grandkids depend on the actions you take today. You clearly embody those words by what you've shared here with me in the last hour. And I think it's a great example for others to follow. And I can't wait to see what happens in your next book. And we're going to do another episode of this podcast when that bad boy comes out. Okay. Very good. Thank you for having me. Yeah. This has been great. Thank you, Ron Dodson. And you're really an inspiring individual. Appreciate you participating with Golf Sustainability. And thanks to all of our listeners for uh, listening to this episode of Golf Sustainability. If you enjoyed it, please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite uh, podcast player. You could also follow us on social media uh, where we have a presence on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. So thanks for being with us today. Enjoy Golf Sustainability. And I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Golf Sustainability Podcast. Take action on the ideas inspired by this episode. You can find out more about golf sustainability in the show notes for each podcast episode and following us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player and we'll see you soon on another episode of the Golf Sustainability Podcast.